Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Today, the church seems to be losing something in its worship, reverence. The gang takes on a listener-requested topic in this episode, talking about how we can reclaim reverence for God in our worship services. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how you can download a free MP3 from the Alliance. Well, great to have you with us today on Mortification of Spin. We are always delighted to get uh, ideas, recommendations, suggestions on various topics to address. And we got one that was interesting. We actually, we've gotten more than just one that's interesting, but one that we thought we'd tackle today is a request to talk about uh, reverence, reverence in our worship, reverence in our, our time together on the Lord's Day, preaching, music, etc. But how do we, uh, how do we approach reverence together in our, in our worship? And I thought, well, that's a that's a good topic, um, considering the fact that uh, the three of us together are not always the most reverent bunch. Um, we thought uh, this would be a good thing for us to kick around a bit and to think about uh, some of the implications. So, Carl and Amy, as we think about reverence, I suppose one thing that that we'd want to do is maybe try to define our terms a little bit. What do we mean when we say reverence or reverent? Or reverend. I insist on being called reverend in my home, for instance. (laughs) I think part of it is uh, understanding how we should approach God as God in an appropriate manner. Uh, Reverence is not a given in some Mm -hmm. senses. There are always going to be some cultural and social aspects to how one understands reverence. But the Bible tells us, uh, Hebrews 12, uh, 28, that we are to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Mm-hmm. Therefore, this is not an option for us. We are to approach God reverently. The question is, what does that look like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of a good example from church history, uh, the 10th century, is when people start folding their hands in prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, folded hands becomes the posture for prayer in the 10th century. And the question is, why is that the case? Well, that was the posture that one adopted when one went into the presence of the feudal lord. Hmm. So when you went as a peasant into the presence of your lord, your feudal lord, you knew instinctively that you were to fold your hands as a sign of reverence and respect. And clearly in the 10th century, Christians uh, thinking about God, knowing that when they come before God in prayer, they're approaching not just a feudal lord, but the lord of Hmm. of all space and time, wanted to adopt a posture that indicated the reverence of their attitude, and so folded hands became uh, the manner of doing that. And that's a good example of how culture shapes uh, the forms of reverence Mm -hmm. uh, that we might engage in. Um, But, of course, it's Scripture itself that provides us with the imperative that we are to approach God in a reverent way. So it it would have more to do with, with behaving appropriately given... Uh, the person in the context. So, so we, 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 we don't want to equate reverence with somberness, although sometimes it is. Um, but we also know from the rest of scripture that, that, that joy is um, uh, commended for our worship. So, so, so reverence can be joyful. Reverence can be uh, happy, but, but maybe reverence having, uh, carrying with it the idea of a weightiness. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, so, so it can be joyful, but it's not a frivolous joy. 
or yeah. a trivial joy. Well, and, and a lot of churches will set the tone for that because mm-hmm. you come in and you're, you're happy to see yeah. each other and you're fellowshipping at first, but then you kind of have to switch it. And I know different churches do it different ways. You know, do you switch it right when you walk into the sanctuary? Mm-hmm. Um, or is there a time where music begins and people to are then be notified in that way that, okay, now we need to be uh, more reverent. We're about to be called to worship. Or is it the call itself? I know some churches do announcements before the call right. to worship for that reason. What do you guys think about that? Mm. At our church, we have announcements before the call, precisely mm-hmm. for that reason. And, and actually, we have a break between the call, between the announcements and the call, usually 15, 20 seconds. We just say to people, now let's still our hearts before we come before the Lord. And then right. the call to worship will be given out by uh, the elder or the minister who's, who's leading worship. Mm-hmm. So there's a short period of preparation, really as much as anything to mark a distinctive break between, okay, this is the day-to-day world that we all inhabit. Now we're entering... The presence of God in the sense of corporate worship yeah. before God. Yeah. So so often, well, I remember coming up in ministry as a new guy in in the late '80s and early '90s, where uh, the church growth movement was still very much um, holding sway over most of evangelicalism, and uh, in and and what was minimized were these things that we're talking about about reverence. Uh, what what became the norm or or the the, the prescription was how do we make sure that that distinction that distinction Carl that you just mentioned is diminished we want people to kind of ooze into it like you would ease into a, a warm bath we don't want anything to shock or to change or to challenge um, and that's why so often churches would kind of ease you in through a variety you know through maybe some pop music um, by the time the sermon came around the, the pastor would always open up with a joke um, to minimize that there's anything actually special or different mm-hmm. about those corporate gatherings. And, of course, we lost much um, as a result of that sort of shift away from re- reverence, if you like. What do you think, too, about dress? I mean, so Carl's talking about the folding of the hands. I've never worn one. <laughs> <laughs> but the folding of the hands being a cultural uh-huh. way to show reverence. Um, what do you think are our cultural ways to show reverence yeah. I, I think that there's been a definite reaction from the starchy mm-hmm. outward righteousness that so many churches had where inwardly they weren't truly reverent mm-hmm. or holy yeah so well i i just know that one time i showed up at carl's church to preach on a sunday <laughs> evening and i didn't have a tie on and I, Carl almost got fired, I think, that, that weekend for that or something. Well, I've like quoted that. my elder Richard Gaffin on you on a number of occasions on this program, <laughs> I think. Uh, I, I do think that, the, that as, as my example from, from feudal Europe in the, in the 10th century, there's definitely a cultural context to what is reverent and what isn't. And part of the problem today is I think, I think we live in a fairly irreverent age. We live in an age that's quite anti-hierarchical, which is very casual, even, even, even in the business world now. Mm-hmm. Suits and ties, which would have been standard 25 years ago, uh, the, the Steve Jobs of this world have set a very different aesthetic for the successful businessman. So in some senses, I think it's, it's hard to navigate those waters is in an absolute sense. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, I'm, I'm less concerned about the way people dress than 
what we might describe as the more liturgical aspects of, of worship. At my church, there's, there's, there's a, there is no dress code. We do like the men in the pulpit to wear ties. Hmm. Todd, if okay. you, might, yeah. you might want to bear that in mind. I, I see, okay. Uh, no, but we, that. as I look out on my church on a Sunday, we have a guy with ponytail. We have guys in suits. We have people in jeans. In the summer, we'll have some people in shorts. Uh, and we don't impose a, a dress code. What I'm more concerned about, though, is the, the overall ambience of the worship service, how the reverent attitude of the heart manifests itself in, you know, in some ways, that most intangible of things, the, the ethos uh, of the worship service. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I once, um, at, a, at a church where I once served as, as pastor, uh, it was a particularly hot summer. And so I, I, for, I, I for went, forego, what's the uh, a past tense of forego? Foregone. Anyway, I didn't wear a tie, and uh, and you never uh, wear a tie. Well, oh, I, yeah. I, I listen. Regardless of the temperature, I, you don't even know how to tie. One. I wore. Oh, nonsense! I He's wore a tie. I grew up wearing a tie every Sunday to church, and, and and it's only now that I live in the Shenandoah Valley that I don't wear a tie every Sunday. But but I did try to go without a tie uh, for a while in the summer in one particular location, and and I, I one of the comments was, "How dare you!" Uh, appear before a holy God without a tie on was one of the responses. And, and, and while, while I want to make sure that we maintain a a, a sense of reverence at the same time, I I don't want to say that it's a tie that makes me um, reverent. Um, And however I appear before the Lord one day, I, I don't think my tie will be an issue. That said, I'm all. I'm not. I'm not going to walk into the pulpit with a cut-off T-shirt, you know, and a bare midriff. Although I get a lot of requests for that. <laughs> well, it's interesting too that Carl's quoting from Hebrews, and in Hebrews, that's a central issue: just how to approach a holy mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. and this whole issue of doing away with all the cere- old ceremonial ways from the old covenant, and Christ being mm-hmm. the mediator now, and that yeah. they can confidently approach God, right. and yet they're still told to be reverent. Yeah. And when we look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, when he's talking in First uh, Corinthians 14 about uh, you know an unbeliever or an outsider coming into the church uh, during this prophesying mm. that's going on, what is meant to happen? They're meant to be convicted. They're meant to fall on their face because they're being called to account. Um, they're in the the presence of a of a holy God. The church in the way it conducts itself in a worship service is somehow to communicate the holiness of the God which the church is worshipping, such that an unbeliever is struck by it, which incidentally, I think, to be quite honest, drives a stake right the way through the heart of the seeker-sensitive movement. Yeah, mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. the seeker-sensitive movement is predicated on people being comfortable in church. Right. Yeah. And obviously we want outsiders to be welcomed and right. spoken to and, and not feel scared of us when they come to church. But should but they we, be comfortable? We, well, yeah, we want them to be aware that something special and holy something very different is going is on here. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And... And that, I mean, we use a particular language. We have a biblical vocabulary that the unbeliever is not going to, to know everything. I mean, one of the things that we try to explain every once in a while to, to those who are with us that, uh, that perhaps aren't believers, believers yet is that, you know what, you're going to hear and see some things that might be brand new for you that you may not fully understand, and that's okay. We're not doing this to make you uncomfortable, but 
this is this is how we worship and we we have a vocabulary we have practices that are different from what you see in the world and yeah you're right the, the whole seeker sensitive movement was to make sure that there was no mystery whatsoever to the corporate worship of god's people and uh, and that's that's problematic um so carl you you preach most every week i preach um one of the things that is oftentimes a lot of pressure is put on preachers to be really funny um now i'm i'm very funny carl you're not funny at all and and so i know that's a problem but you're in the opc where funny where, looking so funny looking funny <laughs> looking that makes yeah, it yeah. Um, a little harder and, uh, for him. <laughs> how's your face feel well it's killing <laughs> <Yeah>. me <laughs> have you finished uh, <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> but um but there is My a lot wife of wife listens to this program <laughs> and, you know she will be crying at this point <laughs> but there's a lot of pressure for preachers to be funny now um, you know, Mark Driscoll once famously said that that he got a lot of his um, took a lot of his cues on how to preach from stand up comics, and and he's certainly not alone in that. Um, so oftentimes you'll have a, a, a preacher get up after the congregation has been singing, and the first thing he does is crack a joke mm. to kind of break the ice, so he can start uh, preaching. Well, so what's what's our thoughts in regard to to humor from the pulpit, humor during a sermon? One thing as a congregant that, yes, we expect reverence mm-hmm. from the pastor as well, but um, we also don't expect robots. Yeah. And so while that needs to be held up, we also know that we're human. Mm-hmm. And Jesus spoke with humor, and not that you should aim to have a funny sermon by any means, but um, your voice comes out in the sermon as mm-hmm. well. And so there, I think there's appropriate times mm-hmm. for something to go in there. and. Um, what do you think, Carl and Todd? Do you guys joke from the pulpit ever, or? Um, I, I, I think I would make a theological case. So, okay. trouble with humor is, as soon as you try to explain it or analyze it, it ceases to be funny. Right. Right. But I think I would make a theological case for humor being an important part of reflecting the fallenness of this world. Mm-hmm. I think Luther was very good on this. Yeah, uh, that when you look well at the fallen book. world, you, you, one can see it as tragedy. One can also see it as farce. Mm-hmm. And there is a very close connection, of course, I think often between between tragedy and farce. So on one hand, on the one hand, I think if you're reflecting reality, then there's going to be some humor mm-hmm. as, you, as you expose the absurdities of human pretensions uh, to be God in a fallen world, there's going to be some humor there. Secondly, on a, on a sort of separate strand, I would say humor can have a, a powerful pedagogical purpose. Mm-hmm. When you think of the parables of Jesus, uh, mm-hmm. quite often they contain a kind of sting in the tail. They rely on the same sort of dynamic that a good joke does. There's a sudden unexpected reversal where expectations are, are, are turned upside down. And the use of absurdity at times. Yeah, you know, for, the yeah. use of, you know, a camel passing through right. the eye of a needle, for example, is sometimes a humorous or, or, or witty image. So I think a, a, a preacher could certainly use humor pedagogically. I think there are some things that need to be avoided. The humor should not be used to draw attention to the preacher himself. Humor should generally be used in a self-deprecating way so that if anybody is going to be the butt of the joke, Mm -hmm. it should be the preacher himself. It shouldn't be a member of the congregation or or a member member of his family. But I think humor can be used pedagogically to make uh, a point and often making a point in a way that forces people 
to think for themselves by reversing expectations, forcing people to think for themselves. And when people think that way, they tend to learn lessons better than if you're just mm -hmm. hammering them with with propositions. Mm -hmm. So I think a skillful use of humor can be can be very useful. I agree with Todd though. This the, the, the sort of what seems to me to be a, a peculiarly uh, American practice of starting your sermon with two or three minutes of jokes just to get people relaxed, that's not appropriate. Humor should be used as a sermon illustration should be used in order to make a specific point, not in order to just win a favor or, or win, a, win a hearing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I guess one of the things that goes through my mind, when I, when I stand up to preach and I invite the congregation to turn to the particular text in their Bible, um, I, that, that's a holy moment, if you like. Um, we're getting ready to hear, uh, quite literally, the Lord speak to us through his word. And that just doesn't seem to me to be the time to crack a joke. Now, I, I may, after I read the text and I begin to make a few introductory comments, uh, every once in a while, I'd say maybe 3% of the time, that introductory comment may be a uh, an observation that is humorous to some, but I, but but the but the the standard excuse for for that sort of humor to to kick off a sermon, do some jokey type things, as a well, I've got to break the ice at this point, or you know, we've been really serious singing, and now we come to the the funny part, the sermon. That's a really, I think, unfortunate misunderstanding of of the preaching. Now, now, all three of us are a part of a. Uh, the, the Presbyterian Church. I'm in the PCA. Uh, you two are are with uh, the OPC. I think they have one or two congregations in the country. And um, see, use of humor. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was absolutely hilarious. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are in fits of laughter after that one. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Anyway, is this thing on? Um, and but but one of the things that 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 you'll see every once in a while that drives me a bit crazy is. Uh, when, when, when we baptize a baby, I know babies are cute. Well, some of them are. Some babies are cute. And we have people in the congregation who kind of ooh and awe when the baby comes up. And I think it's so important in that moment that that the man who is performing the baptism not make jokes about the baby or just how cute this is. Or, or And I've seen some of that. And it just makes me want to crawl out of my skin in those moments. Because I think those are times that should be particularly held in reverence. Um, if you like, I know the baby's cute. I know that the baby might do something cute or funny or, or that kind of thing. But, but I think the man who's entrusted with, with performing that baptism needs to be careful to help keep his, uh, keep the congregation in a, in a, in a spirit of reverence in that time. Though I think sometimes humor can be helpful. I mean, if you're in a congregation like uh, Cornerstone where we have a lot of, mothers with young babies and we yes. encourage mums to be in the service Absolutely. with their with their babies and i know that can be tough mm -hmm. the kids can can play up can yeah. cry and i've actually found it, it helpful on time when but sometimes when a baby's crying oh, absolutely. just to make a little aside a humorous aside you to bet. to kind of break the tension for absolutely. for the mother so she doesn't feel that she, you know, we're looking down on her you know, please yeah. please leave no it's a sort of joke of you know obviously yeah. i made a point the baby disagreed with there right. so, you know, yeah, i'll try exactly. to rephrase it something like that that i think can be can be helpful yeah i would agree and and that's an that's an important point also that because we're a church also that welcomes in the young children now we do have a nursery 
Um, and I think it's good to have a nursery, but uh, it's not mandatory to put, and, and we don't have, yeah, yeah, we, we welcome all the kids in. And that means there's going to be some wiggling and a noise every once in a while and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and in those moments where, where it's just something that you can't avoid <laughs> because it's so loud or, or that kind of thing, to make sure that that parent is not shamed uh, in that moment and that we acknowledge, you know what, we're a church that self-consciously welcomes our little ones into the corporate worship. Babies um, don't quite know about reverence. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And to, and to make sure, and, and, and so humor can have an, an affirming, uh, uh, it could be a great way to, to affirm those families and, and to help instruct our own churches that, uh, look, we're, we're not all 47 year old men sitting here. We've got some little ones also. Well, how about this? The woman who wrote in mentioned that Sometimes there's just an awkward, funny moment during the service. You want to be reverent. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever had one of those moments yes. where, I mean, I know I've had several. Um, one, I did a much better job uh-huh. <laughs> keeping my cool than the, yeah. than the other one. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I sometimes, don't know. sometimes just rare yeah. moments. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes we, there are bodily that? functions that, uh, that <laughs> just cannot be ignored. I've seen some of that. I remember a very sweet moment. There was a... A little girl in our congregation, she was just four or five. She's actually the daughter of a, a man who's now an OPC pastor. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd been away for a couple of weeks, and she was a big fan of mine. She she would always come running up and give me a hug when I arrived in church. And it was one evening I arrived for evening worship, and I'd been away that morning. And the call for worship goes up, and the little girl turns around, sees me on the back row, shouts at the top of the voice, it's you, <laughs> comes running up and jumps onto my lap. And the, the congregation collapsed in laughter. And, uh, and, and the, the, the person presiding said, okay, I think we need to start again. And actually another gave another call to worship. And, and I thought right. that was, you know, on one hand, I wouldn't want that happening every week, you know. But on the other hand, I didn't think... Uh, it was the it was inappropriate there. to do that. Absolutely. It was a humorous moment, and um, absolutely, uh, and you know, it warmed my heart to know that somebody in the congregation was glad to see me. Well, but you know, this little girl was also convinced that I drove a car like Barbie's Ken, <laughs> which you know absolutely mortified me. I have to say, but anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> she loved him for his car. Well, that's that, and actually, that's a great point because um, not about you being a Ken doll, but you know. Jesus welcomed children into his presence, rebuked his disciples for keeping them out. Well, why do why did the disciples want to keep the children out? Well, because they're distracting. Mm-hmm. And Jesus welcomed them in fully aware that children can cause some distractions yeah. from time to time. And so I think that situation that you described is is a great example of some of the beautiful, appropriate things that can happen in a service where we rightly welcome our little ones in and it allows us to show our humanity absolutely Mm -hmm. now amy you're a you're on the sort of receiving end of sermons etc week by week irreverence what what do you think about do you find humor tiresome from the pulpit uh well i mean my pastor uses humor with illustrations sometimes it's nothing forced and one thing that i really appreciate about that is that my children it keeps them in tune to the sermon a little better those absurdities Mm -hmm. in an illustration um even animated, it draws them in. And if I hear my son chuckle in the middle of a sermon because he got the joke, um, I'm warm inside because I'm thinking he's paying attention. He's following this. He actually gets the illustration of what he's saying right now and is making a connection. So um, I think that humor in the proper form is one way to really 
preach to all the ages because you can keep the attention of the young ones in there as well. Right. Um, one thing that just came to my mind about this, because mentioning children brought this to my mind. I'm, I'm, I don't know when this will air, but as we're recording this, I'm doing a, a four-week series dealing with homosexuality and sexual ethics. And one of the things I promised parents is that there would be no crassness, no humor, no jokes, no graphic speech at all. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I'm even you know, checking my, the, the use of the word sex and sexuality. So I'm saying things like physical intimacy rather than some other, just to make sure that, that parents who have their kids in there are not going to be scandalized by the material, but that that material is going to be handled in a reverent mm-hmm. way and that it not become a means for an inappropriate joke to be made or, or some unintentional humor or, or that kind of thing. I think content-wise as well, we need to watch it on, on that. Yeah, we need to make sure that humor is not hurtful. Right. Humor has to be pedagogical. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes humor can be hurtful, and sometimes it's necessary, sure. but probably not in the pulpit. The right. pulpit is too scattergun a right. context for humor that, that has a real sting. Right. Right. Um, sometimes it can be good in polemics to have a good sting, but, but the pulpit is generally not a place for right. polemics. Yeah, when Jesus, when Jesus engaged in that, it was generally with a confrontation with certain people, not as he was teaching the masses. Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. that's, a good, that's a good guideline for us. Well, hopefully this discussion has, if not solved the problem of what is transcendently reverent as an action in every place and every time, has at least indicated that reverence is a biblical imperative and it behooves us all in our specific context to work out what is reverent in our day and age and how can that be reflected and embodied in the the liturgical practices uh, and the, the atmosphere, the ethos of the churches to which we belong. And also we've tried to make the point that uh, reverence does not exclude humor. Uh, humor has a pedagogical value. Humor can burst human pretensions. Humor can highlight the absurdity of life in a fallen universe. And humor can drive people to think about deep things for themselves by reversing their expectations, bringing them up sharp, and making them confront certain realities that perhaps had been domesticated. Perhaps they'd become so familiar with they no longer truly understood in their profundity and uh, all of their implications for life. So we hope this podcast has been helpful to you and we look forward to being with you next time. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you'll find more resources on this and other topics. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to download a free MP3 message, Taught by the Word to Worship, by Peter Lilback. On the next episode, the hosts take on a touchy subject. I'm looking on Facebook and the comments being made and in, in the tweets, people want to be loving. They want to be able to respond in a compassionate way. However, 
I don't think they have the categories to do that. They don't have the categories of the, the fall. If your church has not been impacted by this already, probably at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, uh, the transgender issue is going to come to your church or to a church near you. And it's important for Christians to be able to think biblically, compassionately, appropriately about this issue. Come back to hear that next time. And don't forget to read more from Carl, Amy, and Todd on their blogs at mortificationofspin.org. Just when I think you couldn't get more stupid, you go and totally (laughs) redeem yourself.